welcome to the Found Cause. We have found our cars and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my left is Theodore, under the PC, the person of Christ. And to his left is Sebastian, the bookkeeper. As you can tell by this lovely crucifix sitting in between us, it's time for another response video. This time, uh, we've graced into the grab bag, and we only have about two topics that we've gotten there so far, and that is whoop, we got Catholicism today. I promise you we have other things to respond to. We've got Hinduism in the bag. We've got Islam in the bag. We had woke preacher clips lined up. But frankly, you know, a lot of those don't have a lot of substance. You know, Islam one um, sometimes has some substance. The woke preacher clips almost never does. You're basically saying, yep, they're wrong because abortion is wrong. And that one's wrong because abortion is wrong. And blah, blah, blah. You keep going on. So maybe one day um, we'll do a positive reaction video or something to other things. But for today, we have some substantive Things from the Thomistic Institute. I see what you're doing there because substance. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the, the topic is the sacrifice of the mass. And just a little preface. I think this is the defining issue between Catholics and Protestants. I would say make Catholics um, a gospel denying group. There are many things we disagree with Catholics for. Some unrepentant sin of idolatry and all the rest. But this one would be a gospel denial that we will be reacting to the defense of. Uh, so without that being said, let's let um, this lovely bloody Christ explain to us why he is represented over and over again. The traditional teaching of the Catholic Church is that the celebration of the Eucharist in the Mass constitutes a form of sacrifice in which the Church receives grace from the cross of Christ and participates in Christ's offering of himself to the Father. Quick note. <laughs> Some Catholics deny this or don't quite understand their own doctrine, but I would say, listen to this guy. He's not some guy trying to deceive you. The Eucharist, the giving of the bread and the wine in Catholic masses, is supposed to be a re-representation of the same sacrifice that Christ gave on Calvary. So it's supposed to be another bloody sacrifice. Unbloody. Unbloody because there's not like blood everywhere, but it is bloody in that there's... There's wine that is his yeah. blood and the body, which is his bread or the bread, which is his body. So it is another sacrifice and priests are called alto, alto alter Christus, that one, um, which means another Christ because they're the one making the sacrifice happen again. Um, there's many esoteric defenses of this, um, but the problem will make itself clear in a little bit. This is what we call the sacrifice of the mass. What light can St. Thomas's teaching shed on this topic? So again, this Catholic channel is at the Thomistic Institute, and this is Thomas Aquinas being Thomistic. He's a famous Catholic theologian. So what he has to say in the sacrifice of the, the Catholic mass. Church has always taught that the Mass is a sacrifice, or better yet, a participation in the one saving sacrifice of Christ. Mm-hmm. I'd like to stop him here. Only because we have a local Catholic uh, aficionado on this chair, and it's not me, it's not Theodore. Oh, I was just saying. <laughs> it's <laughs> definitely Theodore. Uh, there's only one of us that has gone to the painstaking uh, research of obscure theologians from the past, mostly from the East, but sometimes from the West, and that's our man Sebastian. Sebastian, do you agree that it has always been the Catholic Church's view that the Mass is a sacrifice? No, it hasn't, and I can prove it even from using Catholic sources. If you want to say, when did the Catholic Church become like what you see today, instituting the Office of the, of the Sacraments, the, the Eucharist? For sure, 1215. Fourth Lateran Council, they did a bunch of strange things there, including anathematizing Peter Waldo, one of the pre-Reformation reformers that mm-hmm. lived in southern France. But they defined, this is the first time this is officially defined in the Church Council, again, might I remind everyone, year 1215, that is over 1,100 years. After Christ. After Christ, yes. Uh-huh. His body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine, the bread and wine having been changed in substance by God's power into his body and blood, so that in order to achieve this mystery of unity, we receive from God what he received from us. So, was there a mystical understanding before this? Absolutely. I would say it would have been a very Lutheran understanding before the Fourth Lateran Council defining, defining the Eucharist. But this is the very first time this is put on paper and this is expressly taught in now, the church. Now, the Catholic would counter, and they always do for tradition, that they might be defining it in 1215, just like they defined the Assumption of Mary in the 1960s. But they would argue it was always the tradition of the church and they were just codifying it. They were just writing it down at that point. But it was always the the held tradition of the church and to that i would say are you sure about that 
because I again all the doctoral students must despise me because I keep buying books that are only <laughs> two available of them on Amazon. Uh -huh. So <laughs> I bought one. This is a book from Ratramnus. Lived in the 800s. One of my in my humble opinion, the golden age for Christianity, besides today, of course, when there's most Christians in the world. China was there were there were Christians in China erecting monuments commemorating the arrival of Christianity to China. The Muslims were debating with Christians in the Middle East. Again, Charlemagne, Emperor of the West, time to be alive. Anyway, Ratramnus lived in the year 800, 800s. He was writing against a new, a novel teaching that was just starting to come up. Can you guess what it is? The Eucharist, of course. Hmm. In fact, it was the King of France, Charles the Bald, that commissioned Ratramnus to write against the teaching of the, the that the bread transformed in substance into the body and blood of Christ. Again, year 800, that's 800 years after Jesus. Right. It is not before that. And the king of a nation is commissioning this man to write something that was against, uh, to condemn, excuse me, a movement that was going against tradition. And over and over in his book, uh, Ratramnus Bertram, speaks against i am writing this to counter the position that goes against the tradition of the church and as he wrote and as he wrote i'll read it he says outwardly indeed it is bread which it was before meaning it's just bread right the form is extended the color is displayed the taste is perceived but inwardly a very different thing is intimated far more precious far more excellent because it is celestial because it is divine the body of christ is exhibited which is neither perceived nor received nor eaten by the corporal senses, but by the earnest contemplation of the believing soul. Mm -hmm. The wine also, which in consecration of the priest is made the sacrament of the blood of Christ, exhibits one thing as far as the outward appearance is concerned, but inwardly it contains another. For what else is seen outwardly but the substance of wine? Taste it. It is wine. Smell it. It has the smell of wine. Look at it. The color of it is wine. The color of the wine is seen. So, we're not denying that it is important. Clearly, it w to me, it's really, uh, as he goes in his book, it's more of a Lutheran consubstantiation understanding of the Eucharist. Right. And in fact, a very elevated position, which I, th I say is absolutely fine to have. I, I don't hold to that myself, such a mystifying of the, of the Lord's Supper, but it is explaining that there is no change happening there. In fact, he argues that it is only meaningful if a Christian consumes it. Otherwise, you're just eating bread. Right. What it does is it feeds your soul because you are remembering Jesus. It figuratively represents the body of Jesus. Otherwise, it'd be bleeding. Guess what? Later in the Middle Ages, later as we get after the Fourth Lateran Council, after Retramnus is condemned, even though his writings were very popular after, after he lived, but later someone's like, oh, who wrote this? Oh, yeah, we don't like this. Get rid of him. They try to get rid of his writings, but you see strange miracles in the Middle Ages of hosts bleeding. Someone stabs it; it bleeds, or like the priest is holding it and starts like right. bleeding randomly. Coincidentally, these things happen after the Lateran Council when it's finally codified. And my suspicion is that these stories came up as a way to popularize the belief in the Eucharist. Well, yeah, as as they do even today amongst the non-discerning church members. But uh, so so I know we've only been uh, 38 seconds into his <laughs> episode. We just wanted to, to historically back and refute the fact that the Catholic Church is constantly, Roman Catholic Church, is constantly trying to evoke tradition and the longstanding held belief of the church, but it simply cannot on things that aren't actually the long-held belief of the church. This one is not one that is long-held. And they will quote church fathers all day long talking about the real body and blood of Christ, but they are not talking about a substantive change in the Eucharist elements themselves. They're merely talking about the same way Baptists would, or Lutherans would, I guess, if you want to be particularly celestial about it, that uh, that Jesus is truly present, but he's not actually, the, the substance is not actually changed, just as uh, Bertram, or Retramos, or however you were saying his Latin name, um, was describing as well. Yeah, and Please keep in mind, this is not some simple matter. It's like, oh, okay, they're just really, really, really emphasizing Jesus there. No, if you, if you read the Catechism after the Council of Trent, the same council that tried to anathematize anyone who is not part of the Roman Catholic Church mm -hmm. wrote, 
Here, the pastor should explain that in this sacrament are contained not only the true body of Christ and all the constituents of the true body, such as bones and nerves, but also Christ whole and entire. Again, the, the myths about uh, bleeding hosts or uh, the blood spilling on a table and then the face of Jesus being, you know... In uh, the blood? Yes. Yeah. Shaped like with, a, with the blood splattered. I would actually end up looking like the face of Jesus. They would hold after the Council of Trent. This is the literal. You're like touching. You're touching Jesus. So it's not some simple over mystification. Again, and then if you don't believe this, you're anathematized. anathematized so, so say the Catholics. Yes. Anyways, just refuting the the historic claim there that it's been the 100% continued belief of the Church. But we'll let him continue. This traditional idea has its origins in the teaching of Jesus himself in the institution narrative of the Eucharist. I hope we see that Jesus' institution, as he's going to say, is not actually an institution of the substantive change of the bread and wine. It's just the, the classical remembrance. Where he states, the night before he dies, that the Eucharist is the blood of the covenant and commands his disciples to do this in memory of me. This set of statements points backwards in time to a sacrifice at Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, 8, where Moses sprinkles blood on the people of Israel and claims that this is the blood of the covenant. It points forward to Christ's death, but also the Eucharist that he is instituting for the church as a perpetual celebration, one that commemorates his redemptive death considered as a sacrifice. Although the we would all agree that it is a commemorative celebration to remember his sacrifice. And we'd all agree with the allusion to the blood that was sprinkled over the people by Moses. But the blood that was sprinkled over us is the blood of Jesus, not the Eucharist. So the Eucharist is a remembrance of that sacrifice that's about to occur when he's instituting it. And it has already occurred today. But again, Protestant understanding matches perfectly with the text. We're in line there until the Catholic says that it's a repeated sacrifice over and over again. The church has always taught that the Mass is a sacrifice. The they have not. We just talked about it. Oh, well. Teaching became controversial in the 16th century when the reformers claimed that it, the idea established... It became controversial 800 years before then. It hadn't even been an issue until the 1200s or 800s. ...a rivalry between the one true sacrifice of Christ and the church's sacrifice of the Eucharist. The Catholic Church responded by affirming that there is only one saving sacrifice, that of Christ crucified, but that the Eucharist allows us to participate in this saving sacrifice and to offer Christ's merits to the Father on behalf of others, united in prayer with Christ by grace. Aquinas. Now let's be clear about exactly what he's saying. He's saying it measuredly and in a dull, droning voice. Uh, the, the thing he's saying, and this is a nuance I've heard also, um, that... It's not actually a re-sacrifice, even though they call it a re-sacrifice because they did hold to that and do hold to that when you're not looking. Um, when they're attacking Protestants or trying to defend the position against Protestants, often Catholics, Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas included, will say, well, it's kind of like how Passover, the meal itself, you can kind of say, and some like Jewish mystics would sometimes say, we're being transported back into the time of the Israelites who were doing Passover when we participate in the same kind of meal that they did. So in the same way, we're not... We're not doing another sacrifice of Christ. We're actually like going back in time and taking a chunk of Jesus's side while he's sitting there on the cross and then transporting it to the present and then saying, here, eat. Um, so it's the same sacrifice. It's just being represented to you. Um, but of course, there really isn't a distinction between that and uh, a re-sacrifice in the traditional sense, which is we're doing it again because you are presenting again the same sacrifice that should have cleansed the sinner to begin with. Which is to say, if you are truly giving the same sacrifice Jesus gave to the sinner again and again and again, does the sacrifice not completely heal you the first time? Does he have to keep giving it to you? No. We turn to scripture and scripture says this. Uh, Romans 5, classic example, the start of Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Emphasis there on justified and peace. Justification happens once and is done. If you're tried and you're justified for your crimes, your justification stands forever. No double jeopardy. It works in the United States Code. It works in God's law. If you have been justified, you are no longer charged with that crime. Therefore, sins that you get justified for you no longer have to pay for. So if you've been paid for by Christ, if the priest does this thing, right, and he gives you to it once, if that's if that's truly the way you're given the, the sacrifice of Christ, which we disagree with too, but if that's truly the way, you'd only do it one time because that one-time presentation of the sacrifice of Christ would cleanse you of 
all your sin, not just your sins up until that point, but all your sin. And then equally, you do not have peace with God, as this passage says, if you keep having to go back to the priest for a retribution. If he's the one that pulls down Christ and gives it to you, you don't have peace with God because as soon as you sin again, you're now under condemnation from God. And so you truly cannot say that we have peace with God through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Romans 5 says, if you think you need to get a continual sacrifice. So again, this belief in re-sacrificing might seem weird and technical and like who really cares if you're calling it the blood of Christ or not. Um, it matters because it has to do with, do you actually have peace with God? Do we actually hold to the scriptures that say this? Are you actually saved? Likewise, yeah. Romans 9, an absolute refutation of this perverse belief, the Catholic Church, which does deny the gospel. Because to say that you are not actually justified by Christ, and instead you're justified through works or deeds or other or representations of the sacrifice, is to deny the, the once-for-all sacrifice. Here's from Romans, an absolute, or from Hebrews, an absolute yeah. refutation from <laughs> Roman, uh, Hebrews, keep saying it, Hebrews 9. 25, nor did he enter heaven, that is Christ, uh, to offer himself again and again. The way high priests enter the most high place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time to stop there the catholic says okay sacrificed once to take away the sins of many but he's going to appear a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time and a sixth time and a seventh time and a hundred million times because we're going to keep presenting him that one sacrifice again and again and again to keep paying for the sins of many and the sins of many and the sins of many but let me continue the verse he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him the writer of Hebrews says not only did Christ have a once given sacrifice, not a repeated sacrifice, he in fact refutes the fact that he that Christ suffers many times that he has to, to be continually sacrificed. He says all that is not the way Christ gives his payment. And then in addition, he appeared one time to pay for sin. And then the second time he appears is not at your dinner table. It's not at the consecrated host. It's to judge the whole world and bring salvation to his lost, to those who he's picked and those who are washed by his blood. His second appearance was not the first Eucharist given after his ascension. So when you say that he appears again, you deny this portion of Hebrews 9. And then lastly, on this topic, I'll say another Romans verse, but Romans and Hebrews, both very, very gospel-rich texts. And therefore, they refute this particular perversion of the gospel. It's technical perversion, but it is a perversion of the gospel that the Roman Catholic Church teaches. In Romans 4, 8, it quotes, Paul quotes Psalm 23, when he says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. The man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, meaning the Lord will not charge with sin. Who is the man who will not have sin imputed to him? The Christian. And so if the Christian will not have sin imputed to him, it means he has been paid for entirely. God will never charge sin against him. You do not need a continual sacrifice if God will never impute sin to you. That is the message of the gospel, that you have been completely cleared of sin. doesn't mean you don't fight sin. doesn't mean you keep getting um, sanctified throughout your life. doesn't mean you're still putting to death the flesh as we walk on this earth. But it does mean sin is not charged to your account in a salvific way, like the Catholic would say. Any comments before I let him go? Mm. Put it beautifully. All right. We're, we're plowing through. One minute, 47 seconds. <laughs> wrote before the 16th century controversy, and consequently, he only dedicates one article of the Summa to the question of the sacrifice of the Mass. Still, his treatment of the subject is instructive and provides one perennially valid way of interpreting the Catholic doctrine. Aquinas first asks straightforwardly whether the Mass is a sacrifice, and he answers affirmatively for two reasons. First, he says... It is a sacrifice because it represents the passion of Christ. What does he mean by this? In one sense, Aquinas is simply talking about the symbolism of the Mass. When the priest consecrates the elements, he does so in a twofold way after the example of Christ in the Last Supper. First, he consecrates the bread so that it truly becomes the body of Christ. Second, he consecrates the wine so that it truly becomes the blood of Christ. As Aquinas notes, the symbolism is one of separation. The blood is presented in distinction from, and in a sense, in separation from the body in the twofold consecration. I'd, I'd like to comment that um, our view of the Mass 
is not as a sacrifice, and therefore we wouldn't call it a mass. Although a mass means gathering, mass has become synonymous with this giving of uh, the bread and the wine as some sort of second sacrifice. Our view of the the commissioning of the consecrated host, or whatever you would like to call it as Catholics, the commissioning of the, the supper that Jesus gave, was just that these are elements you use to eat and drink. You eat food, represented by the bread, and you drink wine, symbolizing any drink you drink. And because humans both eat and drink, when you eat and drink with meals with fellow Christians, you should commission the meal in memory of the Lord for why you are gathered there as Christians. Here is his blood, here is his body, because we're both going to eat and drink, so let's remember that all things we're eating today are in honor of the Lord who died for us. That is what Jesus commissioned at the Last Supper. Nothing magical. It is a great and important remembrance that Christians should do when they gather together, and we should take St. Paul's notes to consideration when he commends the Corinthians not to use it as their big fill-up meal and not to get drunk on wine and whatever else, and the Didache's um, commission to equally not use it in excess, but it is clearly a regular meal that they have to commemorate Jesus. There's not some weird mystical separation either. Jesus does give both because they're eating and drinking. So don't be eating Christ, but not remembering that everything you're eating, everything you're ingesting is in remembering of him. I find it very silly because sometimes even the Lutherans, sorry, Lutherans, they like to really emphasize like Luther was, this is my body. This is, this yeah. is, this is. Hold your horses, friend. Take a deep breath. Even Bertrand, where I was like, wow, he used an argument that I would use. And I've met brother before too. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And to the disciples says, and you're the branches. Are Did those humans just turn into pieces of wood? He is the true vine, though. Is, is, is. Yes. Right. Or like when he speaks to the woman uh, at the well, he says, I am the fountain of life. Is he now a pile of water that sprouts? So again, or like, I am the rock. You know, when God says, is God <laughs> an actual rock, rock on the ground? No. So... I would say it's it was a novel invention to really take it to like saying this is literally again you don't taste any blood there's no change substantial change mm-hmm. ironically in the in the in the essence of the bread and the and the wine so it is a very erroneous teaching unfortunately and frankly I think we see some of the uh, some of it's just out of theological novelty and weird confusion but part of it is also to keep people coming to church in a way that they feel like they need the priest which i think is a pretty natural human response that the priest wants to feel needed and so the church has commissioned in error a way for the priest to feel like he's doing something magical even when he's not serving the flock because what a pastor of a flock should be doing is caring for the flock making sure they're corrected when they need correction making sure he's preaching well making sure he's caring for those who are hurting making sure he's distributing funds to those who need it But instead of doing any of that, I mean, some priests do do some of those aspects. God bless them in their work. Um, But instead of needing to do all that, they can instead feel like their duties are fulfilled when they do something ritualistic, which is how pagan religions worked, not how the Christian commission worked. But um, it doesn't keep men from trying to institute old things into their new religion. That was a really big criticism, even from Luther. And, you know, having to say, oh, Luther, who listens to him? No, even the Catholics, they got their game together because by his time, they were pretty much not preaching any sermons during Mass. All they did was rituals in Latin, which people couldn't speak. And then the priest, because they got paid on how many uh, Masses they did, so they would just, Luther, his concern was, what are you doing? You're doing this. You're rushing through this just so you can get on to the next to the next uh, church, mm-hmm. to the church next door to get the, the rituals again, do the ceremonies and whatnot, and then hop on to the next one to get paid. It was really focused on the ceremony, not so much exegesis, as someone's shirt says right here. And instead, it was focused so much on the ritual, and that created a dependency on the priesthood. Yeah. And consequentially you actually see this happening as the church is getting a tighter control in europe the catholic church it you see it's also the dependency on the church to where that's where you get your salvation right not from god from church now i would say it's not a conspiracy as far as i don't think it was some grand collusion i think it's just a natural human inclination that plays across the western church yeah we'll let him go on because he's going (laughs) to say something very esoteric about how saint blessed saint thomas aquinas saw the distinction between the bread and wine This is symbolic of the death of Christ crucified, whose blood was separated from his body 
by exsanguination on the cross. In other words, Christ intended in the twofold consecration to depict his own death and the symbolic structure of the Mass in turn refers us to his one saving sacrifice by way of representation. We should note that there is something more than a merely human symbolism here, however. As Aquinas notes, the Catholic Church teaches that where the body of Christ is, his blood, soul, and divinity are also present by concomitance, since Christ is one. And likewise, where his blood is, his body, soul, and divinity are present by concomitance. It baffles me how people will defend their positions somehow thinking they've got some logical conclusion, but it's not logical at all. Jesus also says that when two or more are gathered in his name together, praying, there he is among them. Does that mean his body is there somewhere, like some crumb on the ground, or maybe like part of their shirt or their earlobe has become Jesus Christ's body in whole? No, because his spirit is there, i.e. the Holy Spirit, which is the representation of Jesus Christ, who is the representation of the Father. They're all God. So we don't believe that, and I don't think the Catholic believes either, but when two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, that Jesus is physically there suddenly, like something some something somewhere around them has transformed into the one and only body of Christ. No, because only the priest has the power to do that. Um, in the same way, when he's truly present in the Eucharist, he doesn't have to bodily be there. And therefore, if his soul is there, like we say that Jesus is present because he's present in the gathering of believers, that's why he'd be present at the Eucharist. Um, it does not subsequently conclude that his body is there also. That's, that's just not logical. Something I haven't mentioned might be important. This way of thinking that how could the substance, you see these words substance, that comes from the importation of Greek philosophy into the Western church around this time. It was occurring to become fashionable, trendy, hip, cool to speak philosophy as a, as a Christian monk. So I see it as, a, as, as part of the consequence of this. Uh, this became a novel teaching mm -hmm. from the importation of philosophy in these categories from Aristotle. And, and Thomas is like not ground zero, but definitely one of the contagion spreaders of that philosophy, Western Greek philosophy into the church. Um, he's got a huge fan club now. It's why this channel exists. It's why Aquinas 101, the series of this channel exists. You can see they're very focused on what Thomas thought. I mean, I won't slam him too hard because I understand it's a channel focused on what Thomas thought. So they're trying to teach you what Thomas thought. But in outside of the channel, isn't it weird to so focus on one man and what he thought versus what the scripture said? Um, but we'll let them continue. So, Christ, did you have a comment? Oh, I don't know. I'm just wondering if we want to go over the correct, like the actual institution of the supper. Potentially, because this, if this you want. seems to be in line with the Didache. But yeah, I mean, maybe keep it because we should go over our okay. our version of the supper. In case you're wondering, in case you're Catholic or maybe Protestant, but you've heard different things about the Lord's Supper, we highly encourage you to go and read the passages about the Lord's Supper. They're very few. They're they're not prolific among Scripture even. To think it's such an important thing, you'd think it would be all over Scripture. It's really few and far between. It is a ritual done by the early church, and it's talked about in Corinthians, and of course Christ himself institutes the practice, um, but it's really not central to the Christian faith, and you'll see that when it's talked about in Corinthians by St. Paul. Um, I don't know if you want to quote it, if you haven't. Uh, yeah, do you want me to read all that? Just a portion, if you would. Let's see, half of chapter 11. This is of Corinthians? Yeah, first, first Corinthians. First Corinthians. Um, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions uh, exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together... It is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and uh, one is hungry and another is drunk. What? <laughs> Exclamation point. Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Um, for I received for, uh, from the Lord, which I also uh, delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup at, also after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as, 
as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, uh, you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup, uh, the drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the bo the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Uh, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Okay, I think that's about it. He just well, keeps going on. Well, two verses left. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So in summary, the Corinthians were, as doing a lot of things wrong, they were also getting drunk, they were they were eating before others, they weren't waiting for others to get their meals, and they were just chowing down on a big portion of the meal that they had brought for the, the supper. It clearly was not a tiny little wafer that somebody had communed. <laughs> it was like a big meal that they were eating, right. at least some of them were. And so we're saying that's right to, to do what the Corinthians are doing? No, but notice that Paul also doesn't say to to do it differently as far as like make it some weird priest institution. He's simply saying, get your fill of food at home. We're going to do a symbolic meal together. And then equally for wine, don't get drunk. Like you can go drink a bunch of wine at home. When we're together, we're going to eat and drink, um, proclaiming the Lord's coming until he arrives. That was the word that stood out to me, proclaim. It's mm -hmm. very similar to baptism. You're not doing it because it has magical powers, mm -hmm. because you've mm -hmm. already been saved. It's actually how you were baptized, even in the Didic, even in the early church. You mm -hmm. were first a believer, then you were baptized. Point for Baptist, right there. Yep. And likewise, it's a public proclamation. Yeah. Likewise, this meal, after you do the reading, you were supposed to kick out all non-believers and only eat with Christians, remembering, proclaiming the death of Christ and his atonement for us. Which, frankly, if you think about that, I mean, just on a straight practical level, if you were going to make others excommunicated miss the the unity of being part of the Eucharist, you'd think it would need to be something worth missing. I don't think there's many souls that miss the tiny, um, you know, wafer. tiny wafer, tiny bit of wine that's a you know a short segment, or even if it's a long, like twenty minute segment. I guess if you're really drawn it out, segment of church. I don't think many are that disappointed to be exclusively excommunicated from that portion of the church i think it's much bigger deal if it was like a private dinner that they all had and you weren't invited that's something that you'd actually just practically mm -hmm. miss again not that that's the reason they're for our defense i'm just saying that would all be in line with with excommunication and, and re-communing people um, but we've spoken a lot <laughs> defend a lot of our positions let's let him continue on what aquinas thought and what catholics think christ is present body blood soul and divinity in both the eucharistic host and the Eucharistic chalice. Nevertheless, formally speaking, the bread becomes the body of Christ per se, not the blood, and the wine becomes the blood of Christ per se, not the body. So in effect, there is a mystery of divine symbolism inscribed in the very rite of the Eucharist by God himself and by the effects of God that he intends in the Eucharist. Each element contains something distinct formally, either body or blood, not both, but each contains also the mystery of the other by ontological union. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you've explained this to us and that Thomas could so wax poetically on the fact that the bud is not the body, but it also kind of is because if God's there, he's probably like also there in body if he's there in blood. Um, I don't think it matters at all that you be drinking his blood, but not his body or eating his body, but not his blood, except that you'd want to take all Christ in. Tell me the grand distinctions between his blood and body and what makes one a proper sacrifice without the other. I, I, I don't think it's important at all whether or not it's his blood or his body. As wherever your body is, your soul is. And where... But it's not also, it's also just not true. Like, you're, just because your body is someplace, your soul is not there. Wherever Christ's body is, his soul and divinity are present. So in the Eucharistic host and in the chalice, the whole Christ is present. And yet the consecration is twofold due to a divine intention symbolizing the passion. Wait, hold, 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 wait. About the body and the soul. When he was buried, he went down to Sheol. But his body was on earth. 
Yes. But now he's risen, so he stays in his body, you could assume, except we really don't know that and how the body-soul thing functions. We do know, again, the promise of Christ that we're to a mother God in his name, praying to him that he is there among them. And yet, we all agree that he's not there bodily, so therefore his soul, his divinity, could be there without his body. So your assumptions are, are philosophically unsound and not biblical. Consequently, the Eucharist represents the passion, but in a very particular way, through the twofold consecration instituted by Christ himself. Second, I'd also like to show, I don't, that this whole compare, I mean, it's really not even important. I don't even know that it's important to Roman Catholics. It's like weirdly important to Thomas Aquinas. The important distinction between Roman Catholics and Christians is that Roman Catholics believe that this real sacrifice is another payment that you get refreshed, renewed, repaid for uh, again and again and again, which is wrong. It's a rejection of the gospel, and that's the exact problem with Roman Catholic theology that says that you're paid for your original sins by Jesus, and then your works are on top of that. Your, your sacraments are other coverings of different parts of your sin. And eventually, if you die and you haven't had some of your patchwork of sins paid for, you'll go through purgatory and then finally be ready for heaven. None of that is from the, the gospel. It is a complete rejection of the gospel. And as Paul says in Galatians, those who believe that you're justified by faith and works, faith and law, as he says, are anathema. The only time it's used in the Bible, anathema, the word the Catholic Church so often likes to use, is used against the very core Catholic doctrine that says you are justified by both God and your works to God which we would say, no, it is only the one work that justifies you, Jesus Christ. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who are actually covered by his blood, do good works, yes, but they do not save them. The work and only the work, the one work of Jesus Christ saves the Christian. Um, all this other distinctions about the blood and the bread, both representing the actual atonement, the, the, the passion on the cross, didn't, didn't he, he took hyssop with sour wine, so that's a portion of the, the sacrifice on the cross, and that has a bunch of symbolism about sacrifices in the Old Testament. When he's pierced inside, it's blood and water, so where's the water? Um, Origin could answer all these questions for you, but you don't want the answers. Well, <laughs> clearly the blood and the body aren't fully representative of the passion, so I don't mm -hmm. understand why the distinction should be made anyways. Aquinas says that the Eucharist is a sacrifice by way of application the Eucharist applies to us the grace that Christ obtained. And this this is the core central problem when you yes. say the Eucharist applies the grace merited by the passion of Christ. Take a hike. It is not. That is a rejection of the gospel. The application of the blood of Jesus Christ is only given by him, not the priest, and it is not given by a little wafer or wine. It is by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. As he says, the Holy Spirit is a down payment. He is the comforter, not a wafer, not wine. You're simply taking something that is good and blowing it way out of proportion and then ripping the gospel apart in the same time. A comparison extremely accurate. And should I say COVID shots? <laughs> you would think that one and only one would last, you know. <laughs> okay, you're gonna get demonetized, okay. <laughs> yeah. But instead, I'm not criticizing the quality or relevancy. I'm not saying anything like that at all. It just so happens that it is strongly recommended that we get one, two, three, four, and so on. Booster shots. The analogy applies here. Is one enough? No. Look at what he's saying. Applies to grace bearded by the passion of Christ. I mean, I, doesn't the Bible say Paul himself, an apostle, say that why one sacrifice would have been justified mm -hmm. by him? Same the author of Hebrews, which I would say is probably Paul's, like the teaching of Paul, whatever, neither here nor there. Instead, we have to go in every Sunday for a booster shot, which is actually the language used is you're infused by grace. Mm -hmm. No, it's an infusion of grace, excuse me, when you consume the, the as, Eucharist. As if you had run out of grace, like Jesus' yes. grace is limited, huh? Exactly. That's the problem. Again, this is the perversion. This is what makes Catholics non-Christians. They reject the actual salvation. And again, not just me saying that. That's straight out of Paul's mouth when he's speaking to the Galatians. He's talking to the Judaizers who believe that Christ is necessary for salvation. They just also believe you have to keep the law. And if you don't keep the law, you're not um, saved. And we would say, yes, you should keep the law. Of course, some portions of the law are fully fulfilled in Christ. But... Um, that is not what saves you. It's not the keeping of the law that saves you, though it be good. It is the sacrifice of Christ, the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ alone. It's not done again and again and again. For the Church, in virtue of the sacrificial merits of the cross, you might say that the Mass, as a sacrifice, reactualizes the power of the cross operatively to apply it to our lives. Ah! 
I'm dying only because that doesn't make any sense and it's dumb but I understand what he's trying to say and that is that he's just saying what we just said teleporting you back in time bringing the one and only sacrifice and operating operates it it activates it whatever it's like just giving you the grace again but the underlying assumption is here is that you need that grace again as if that grace had gone away Mm -hmm. why do you have to get it to the priest there's a lot of questions here you should go be be able to go directly to God but also God's gift is is permanent it is permanent ceiling Notice how reasonable this is. Christ dies for us, and in doing... <laughs> Notice how reasonable it is. ...so merits the grace of salvation we receive. This grace is given to us or applied to our lives. <sighs> it It's just simple idolatry. I'd actually like to point out, this is kind of like snippy things to point out because we already went to the meat of the, the meat of the conversation. The meat of the disagreement here is just straight outlined in Romans um, 5, straight outlined in Romans 4, straight outlined in Hebrews 9. But just to be quippy, you know, the problem with this weird view... Yes. Oh, go ahead. Especially. I was going to say, let's give some context because I know what you want to cite huh? from Second Kings. First, Second Kings, yeah, one of those. Mm-hmm. What What are you supposed to do the moment you go in to a, a Catholic church? This is important. You are supposed to... I mean, I was giving you a chance... You just cross to, yourself? Yes, you cross... Holy your, water and something. Yes, you get holy water, you do the sign of the cross, and then you're supposed to get on, take, an, take a knee, bow on one knee. Mm-hmm. Why? Who is sitting on the altar at the center right there of the church? Who? Father Jones. Alternate Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I was thinking more of Jesus Christ, yes. But all of those answers are fair and valid. (laughs) Jesus, the Eucharist. Because again... I just read from... I read from the Council of... From the Council of Trent, the Catechism. And uh, also from the Lateran Council. That is Jesus. That is literally... You're touching. You can touch. You can put Jesus in your mouth. Okay, you're bowing to God. That is God in the altar, sitting right there. That's why you're supposed to bow, because you are in the presence of God now in the church. And now we're going to talk about why that is actually a big problem. And again, it's kind of quippy, but I think it warrants conversation. Idolatry in the Old Testament happens a lot of ways. There's some classic analogies with all the paintings and the bowing the paintings and all the rest of the reverence the Catholics give conversation for a different day but in this particular instance the Catholics here the the Thomistic Institute are saying that Christ's salvation is being poured into the the elements the cup and the the bread and that when they are consecrated they really are Jesus Christ and like Sebastian said enough that you'd be crossing yourself and bowing you're now in the presence of Christ like otherwise you wouldn't have been in the presence of Christ but here he is in bodily form so you should bow to him Another man in the Old Testament pointed to an object, an earthly object, and said, this is God, worship him. And he was pointing to somebody who he said was the biblical God, but this action was considered gross idolatry. Enough gross idolatry, it cursed his entire nation for several generations. This was Jeroboam, the uh, counter to Solomon's son that split the kingdom of Israel. He was God ordained to take the, the northern kingdoms, but of course he falls into idolatry in every single one, not everyone, but for many generations, his sons, it says they sinned, they were wicked, but not as wicked as Jeroboam, not as wicked as the first king. And the principal sin of Jeroboam, that first king of Israel when the nation split, was this. This is first kings. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves and said to the people, Going up to Jerusalem is too much for you. Here, O Israel, are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The problem here was not that he was pointing to the biblical God because the biblical God did take the the Jews out of the land of Egypt. So that's true. And you could counter and say he's giving them a physical representation because it's just so important to have physical things. And we're not Gnostics because we have real bodies. And so we should have physical things to to praise and adore that remind us of the true God. And he, you could truly say he's there because we're remembering him and he is everywhere, isn't he? You can get all those like nasty, disgusting, devilish talk things that that often people use to justify idolatry, Catholic Church not included. But here we know that Jeroboam's instance here, where he says these these calves are your God. They are Yahweh. Witness Yahweh. Just as Aaron had said when he makes the golden calf at Mount Sinai and says, here is Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of land of Egypt. Same thing. Notice, he is not saying this is Zeus, this is Thor, this mm-hmm. is Moloch, this is Baal. He's saying Yahweh. Just right. Very important. And it's done twice. And yeah. so you can see it's propensity for men to do this. Pretty normal thing. And it's also evil, gross idolatry enough that it warranted the breaking of the Ten Commandment tablets by Moses, enough that it cursed the the um, 
Israelites when they were in the desert, and that also cursed uh, the nation of Israel when Jeroboam did this gross idolatry. So to say that these cups are the body and blood of Christ and that God is truly present, here he is. Here is your God, Jesus. Bow and worship. You are doing exactly what Jeroboam did. It's idolatry. Not to mention all the other idolatry done by the Roman Catholic Church. But that's neither here nor there for a different episode. In the Eucharist, this key defining issue between Romans and, and Cap proper Protestants, um, is uh, an idolatrous rejection of the gospel. It's both. It's both idolatry and a rejection of the gospel. And don't say, don't think that we're calling it idolatry just to be snappy or mean. Mm -hmm. We have demonstrated that this was a novel teaching that was not part of church tradition, if you want to use those nice words. Holy right? apostolic tradition. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was an invention. And the fact that it's an invention and now it is proclaimed as if it is truly the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. That is why this warrants to be called idolatry and actually pretty much blasphemy, just straight up blasphemy. Yeah. Well, let me go on. <laughs> Chronologically, after the event of the sacrifice of Christ, which has already transpired. But the Eucharist not only symbolizes to us where the grace comes from, but is the occasion in and through which the grace of salvation is dispensed to us in a particular Which is the problem, but we're repeating <laughs> ourselves. Particular way. This is already the case with baptism and with other sacraments. It's not. Again, video for another day, but baptism is once again a symbol, an outworking of your belief in Christ. It is not something that actually saves you. I know the scripture that says that baptism saves you, just as Paul says that birth, childbirth, saves a woman, but it's a different kind of saving. It's not salvific saving. It is saving as in an outworking of good works that saves you, sanctifies you. Part of the argument also from Bertram was, uh, this is English-French name Bertram, Ratramnus is the Latin name, um, just he, in order to argue that the bread and wine are bread and wine, just casual, ordinary objects, he says, likewise, the waters of baptism, they have no spiritual power to them. They're just corruptible water. Like the bread is going to decompose and rot. It's not. Otherwise, would Jesus be rotting in heaven if mm -hmm. he was actually, if that was actually Jesus? Unfortunately, later there will be a development in which holy water became, was collected, which was water from baptism. I thought it was ironic that his argument was, yeah, even just like how baptism doesn't have any magical, the water doesn't have any magical powers. Once again, not the universal teaching of the Catholic Church. It is a development that has happened, and a bad one at that. They effectuate what they symbolize. The Eucharist does this with respect to the grace of the sacrifice of the cross. Aquinas notes also in the Summa that the Eucharist contains Christ himself, and therefore the full power of the passion of Christ himself is deployed in this sacrament. Is it? So the full power of Jesus Christ, bam, blasting away sin for one week. Because next week you're going to need him again because you kicked a dog. You didn't walk grandma across the street. You didn't pray enough that would have pleased God. So the full power of Jesus Christ blasting through the Eucharist cannot save you even for another day. That's really sad. It's an ineffectual Christ. It's a different God. It's not the gospel. One dimension of the mystery of the passion is the transformative power of Christ's grace, which can change us. Another is the prayer of Christ that he makes on behalf of all, including those who do not know God, or who are alienated from him, or who are caught up in sin. These elements of the sacrifice of Christ, then, are communicated to us in the Eucharistic sacrifice. We can. So, he says that to those who do not yet know Christ, the call to them is the Eucharist. Except if you eat and drink of the Eucharist without believing in Christ, you are drinking and eating judgment on yourself. So I would say it's not, because you actually have to hear the gospel before you drink and eat the Eucharist. So it's really the hearing of the gospel that's a call to those who are yet in Christ, not the eating and drinking of the Eucharist. I think what he meant to say was repent and believe, but he didn't <laughs> say it. <laughs> I don't think he meant to say that, but that would be a good thing to say. I agree, because that's the actual gospel. And not just to be all in the negative. The actual gospel <laughs> is fully effectual. This is the Christian response. I don't care if you call yourself Protestant, if you call yourself Baptist, Presbyterian, if you call yourself American or Chinese, wherever you come from, the Christian message, universal and everlasting throughout the church, from the apostles original, from Christ himself, all the way to today, 
with its ups and downs and different attacks on it, the Christian message is that Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and the life. The only way to heaven is through him. And in that, he's also the complete way to heaven. He is the one who completes your faith. So if you trust in Jesus Christ alone, he will cover you with the blood of his own sacrifice and you will be completely paid for. All of your sins, which would normally condemn you, you stand before God condemned if you are a human on earth, you will be forgiven all of these, paid for them by the justice of God, brought on Jesus Christ instead of you. So if you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and he covers you by his blood, there is peace between you and God. Your enemy, enmity between God has been done away with. You are no longer his enemy. You are instead his friend, his son, his daughter adopted, and you will live forever, not only on this earth because you have eternal life already, but when your body dies, you will be resurrected again in the new heavens and the new earth, and you will live forever in the presence of God, completely washed away of sin. It is effectual. It is actual. It gives complete peace, and it does not require the workings of mankind every single week for you to keep getting your sins paid for. And I'll, Israel. and I'll let him continue. <laughs> we receive grace from Christ crucified that can transform our lives. We are also invited to offer his sacrificial merits to the Father on behalf of all of humanity, including those who are far from God. For this reason is... Uh, you know, there's a lot of things to break down as far as like how that kind of belief uh, gets populated, but we would just simply stipulate God means to save his particular people. We do not save the earth by commissioning the sacrifice. We cannot baptize the dead like the Mormons do, where they baptize people who are never Mormons at all, hoping that they will somehow become Mormons in heaven and the, in the backside. So in the same way, when we celebrate in church and we worship God and we do the Eucharist in memory of God, we are not saving our neighbors. God may choose to save our neighbors in his own sovereign grace, but our works are not somehow saving our unbelieving neighbors. They come to God through their own relationship with God. We want to preach to them. We want to do good works. We want to be a witness to them, all that. But the Eucharist itself does not cover our neighbors of blood. It doesn't actualize anything. It doesn't allow them to come to Christ. God is the one who chooses who he wants to save, and he does it. He never fails. This was another issue with the Reformation. Who is it actually yeah. that saves? Is it your faith and mm -hmm. your merits through the cooperation with the grace of Christ, or is it... God alone. God alone. For further reference, check out Ephesians 1, and that will answer your question. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> As Aquinas notes, we pray in the Eucharistic prayer for union with Christ for others. In fact, as the church's liturgy makes clear, for those within the church and for those outside the church, that all might be affected and transformed by the one saving sacrifice of Christ. This is indeed a beautiful mystery. Daily participation in the sacrifice... It's not a mystery, it's a contradiction. If you say that the Eucharist saves you and yet you aren't saved because you still have sin the very next moment you sin, then it's not a mystery, you just simply were never actually saved. And in the same way, when you say you're saving your neighbors who don't believe via the Eucharist, but they aren't actually saved, they still go to hell, you aren't actually saving them. It's not a mystery, it's lies. Sacrifice of the Mass teaches us to inscribe the grace of the cross at the heart of our lives. It also teaches us to pray to Christ with him and in him for the salvation of the world. For readings, podcasts, and more videos like this. And then we'll cut them short. That was the Thomistic Institute. Hopefully you saw some of the things we hate, at least I hate on this channel, is <laughs> some of the weird philosophy and overuse of words that nobody cares about, um, or somebody cares about, but I don't think are actually practically useful. But I think you also would have seen the, the core of the Roman Catholic belief was really there. I mean, they didn't shy away from it. Um, as much as they gave it weird, heady, philosophical concepts i would expect nothing less from thomas aquinas fans um we also got to the core of the problem which was the substitution of christ's actual sacrifice for a fake sacrifice that involves bread and wine becoming his body in some fake way that is extra biblical it's not from the bible it is written into the bible it's written into even church father opinions we showed that today that it's a it's a novelty it's not that novel considering it's been a thousand years now <laughs> but but it is a novelty compared to the whole life of the church so they don't have the history on their side and they certainly don't have the bible on their side and they will not have god on their side if you have this opinion you need to turn from it quickly because this understanding of christ's sacrifice will not save you you need a true understanding of Christ's sacrifice. You need to come to the real God, one that actually saves you fully. It's really close, just like the Judaizers of Paul's day who were very close. They believed Jesus' sacrifice was necessary. They believed that you could be saved entirely through Jesus Christ, but they believed they that Gentiles needed to keep circumcision and other works of law, but particularly circumcision. Paul calls them unsaved, that they are cut off from Christ. That'd be the word anathema. Cut off from Christ, fallen from grace. 
meaning they never were with Christ. They're Judaizers, even the word itself today is an evil word. They were trying to infuse the law as a necessary means of salvation with grace. And even though they were so close to what we look like Christians, because of that one problem, they were considered anathema, cut off from the gospel. And in the same way, Catholics, even if they only had this problem, though they have others, even if they only had this problem, we should consider them anathema and reject that teaching and bring them back into the true Christianity. Those especially faithful Catholics who really believe in God turn away from this evil contortion of what the actual gospel is and turn to a real Christian church. Christian churches all around have problems, and there are certainly terrible, terrible, terrible Protestant churches who don't preach the gospel either. So look for a Bible-believing church. I don't care what they call themselves. If they preach Christ crucified truly and the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, they are Christian. Yes, and also, please, do note how did he quote the Bible much? Not really. It was just the Lord's Supper and then that's it. The reason why we wanted to go over this video was because look at how, what focusing and starting with philosophy versus starting with the Bible does to your understanding of mm -hmm. Christianity. We went over Christian truths before. Many are proper. Many are relatable. Of course, they're not, they're not evil. If you start there and not the Word of God, you're going to go in some wild directions just as Bertrand was trying to counter this mm -hmm. over a thousand years ago. Just as there are many Protestants today that are saying, oh, philosophy is awesome. It's awesome. What, what's all the scriptura? Who needs, oh, who needs the Bible? Oh, that's for old, that's for dinosaurs. So start with the word of God. That should be the source of truth and understanding for all matters relating to the faith. Do you have any last words, Theodore? I just wanted to bring this one up. <clears throat> Psalm 32, This I think this is the first situation for the imputation of sin uh, mm -hmm. reference. Mm -hmm. Um, it says, how blessed is, how blessed is uh, he whose transgre transgression is forgiven, mm -hmm. whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man uh, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning uh, all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever uh, heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. sin. Um, and then James 5 says, um, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. Um, and that's about basically confessing and bringing your sin uh, to a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Um, not about like you have to go through this priest mm -hmm. and then also take this uh, bread and wine from this priest. But yeah, we right. mentioned that. And good to have full context too, because that, that Psalm 32 is the one quote, I think say 23, which is wrong, but 32 is the one that's quoted in Romans 5. So you get yeah. full context that it is in context when he says the sin is not imputed to him. It's about repenting as as was the case in David's time when he wrote the psalm, and as is the case today, the way to salvation is through repentance and belief. Yes, if I may say so. Many times in the Bible, there are many analogies to how the Christian life actually uh, it works. In many cases, uh, Paul compares us to athletes training, and doesn't mean that we merit the salvation because the one who put us in the fight, in the race, is God himself, and the Spirit is the one who... He says himself, motivates us and pushes us. Second Timothy says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. When you repent and believe, as David, King David said in Psalm 32, actually says, I confess my sins. I turn from them and the Lord forgave me. Repent and believe. And as we've gone over, one sacrifice, once and for all. What this does, the Lord himself and the Spirit, they put you on an end goal. Be, be to be sanctified to be shaped into the image of Christ all Christians are on that race until we die of course and then we're taken up to the kingdom of God if you subscribe to this system of Catholicism we may start at the same place what we're actually doing is instead of running on the road on the track you're actually standing on top of a treadmill you think you're getting closer you're, ex you're exercising you're running as fast as you can with all your might but you little do you realize that you're still in the same place because you may receive salvation, 
one Sunday. The very next morning, if not the same day, you can sin and be completely lost and sent to hell if you commit a mortal sin, which is a willful, planned sin against God or against your neighbor, of course. You're on a treadmill. You're not moving in any direction. That is why the system doesn't bring any hope, doesn't bring any true peace with God. So we call you. Come out of, out of that. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to these nice gentlemen that are next to me, as trustworthy as they may be. Listen to God himself. Take it from his word. Take it from his revelation. How are you saved? How do you have peace with God? How can your sins be truly, permanently forgiven? Christ. Actually, the Spirit answers that through the apostles, through the prophets. Don't take it from us. Take it from God himself directly. And then you will see that what we say stands consistent with what God revealed. Plus, look quick at the end. If you drink actual blood, you're disobeying God's law, which in Genesis 9-4 <laughs> and in Leviticus and even at the Council of Jerusalem and Acts says you should not do it sinful. So if you're actually drinking the actual blood of Jesus Christ, you are actually disobeying the law of God. That's why it's actually just spiritual. And that's why when the Jews try to stone Jesus for when he says you have to eat and drink of me, clearly he's meaning spiritual. They don't understand it. They think he's asking them to break the law. He's not because he's consistent and completion of the law. That's why we serve the very same once-for-all sacrifice, Lord Jesus Christ. I've been Michael DeVan behind the machine, and to my left has been... Theodore, under the PC, the person of Christ. to his left has been... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Thanks for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, which have some response videos and some positive, beautiful theological concepts that aren't response videos, you can go to fountaincause.podbean.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. That is audio only, though. If you want to see our beautiful faces and the beautiful face of our uh, reaction person here, you'll have to go to YouTube and search us there, Cause on YouTube, or we're on facebook.com forward slash foundcause. We're also on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever else you might find your podcasts. That being said, until next time, bye-bye. Bye.